Broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network, this is Cultural Baggage. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. Hello, my friends. Welcome to Cultural Baggage. I hope you're enjoying the start of the holiday season. On today's show, you'll hear the Poppygate report from Glenn Greenway, We'll have a special interview I did with Bill Piper of the Drug Policy Alliance about the cowardice of the Democrats. But first, we hear from a presentation given last week at the University of Wisconsin Medical School by Dr. David Behrman. This isn't a laughing matter. It's not Cheech and Chong medicine. Uh, General Barry McCaffrey called this Cheech and Chong medicine uh, in 1996. Uh, after the voters of the states of Arizona and California uh, approved the legalization of medical marijuana in those uh, states. Uh, cannabis is medicine. It's not a joke. And let's get into that. There are <clears throat> at least 12 states where uh, it's legal. Maryland, uh, it's questionable because there you can use it as a defense after you've been found guilty. It doesn't sound like uh, that's a real legalization. Uh, briefly, uh, in the Chinese oral history, their materia medica goes back to 2637, and either the second Chinese emperor or the mythical Chinese emperor, also uh, the uh, god of pharmacy and agriculture, Shan Nen, uh, is said to have discovered the medicinal properties of uh, cannabis. Sir William Osler, of course, in his uh, textbook of internal medicine written in the 1890s and two subsequent editions, last one written, I think, in 1916, all uh, included uh, the advice that cannabis was uh, the best treatment for migraine headaches. Uh, if you are interested in reading more about migraines, Ethan Russo, who was a neurologist in Missoula, Montana, and is now the North American Medical Director for GW Pharmaceuticals, wrote a 60-page article in the Journal of Cannabis Therapeutics that explores the medicinal use of cannabis for a treatment of migraines. He attempted for five years to uh, get uh, government approval to do research uh, on the use of cannabis for migraines, and uh, the government refused to uh, cooperate. Uh, cannabis, of course, was in the United States Pharmacopeia from 1854 until 1941. Now, let's get on to modern research, because that's what you are concerned about. Uh, before the modern research, in 1937, uh, at the Marijuana Tax Act hearing, Dr. William Woodward, who was the chief lobbyist for the American Medical Association, said that uh, the AMA was strongly opposed to this legislation and that the AMA knew of no dangers from the medical use of cannabis. 1949, there was a study done showing that marijuana was useful in relieving seizures. I have a number of uh, patients who have seizures who get relief from cannabis. Uh, one of those was a young woman, middle, woman in her middle 30s who had an AV malformation, had had a cerebral bleed at the age of 17 and another one at the age of 27. The same neurosurgeon had saved her life twice. She was hemiparetic, 
her history was that she had recurrent uh, and uh, be adequately treated seizures uh, every day. However, she said if she stayed just a little bit high, she never had a seizure. And many seizure patients have found that <clears throat> if they are regularly using marijuana, they don't have seizures. If for some reason their supply of marijuana is interrupted, they start having seizures again. And this is compatible with the mechanism of action of cannabis, which I hope to have time to get into uh, uh, later on. Uh, there were uh, studies that were done in the 1970s and 1980s uh, in eight states, which demonstrated that smoked cannabis was effective in uh, treating uh, nausea and as an appetite stimulant. In 1985, the federal government uh, worked cooperatively with Roxanne Laboratories uh, to get Marinol to the market. They were concerned uh, at the relatively large number of AIDS patients who were gaining relief from marijuana, and they wanted to have a pharmaceuticalized uh, option. Marinol is not marijuana. Uh, it's not pharmaceutical marijuana. It is a synthetic Delta-9 THC. Cannabis, as we will see later on, has 483 cannabinoids in it, uh, I'm the number one prescriber of Marinol in Santa Barbara County, uh, and it does help some people, and it does not help some people. Uh, in my clinical experience, marijuana is preferable to Marinol, but Marinol certainly does have uh, clinical uses, and those clinical uses go beyond uh, the FDA approval, and you know that you can prescribe drugs for off-label indications as long as you have a defensible reason either uh, from research or uh, strong anecdotal evidence to write prescriptions off-label. As a matter of fact, 40% of all prescriptions are written for off-label uh, indications. Um, <clears throat> the endocannabinoid system is the largest neurotransmitter system in the brain. We know practically nothing about it. It was first characterized in 1992 by Raphael Meshulam, the Israeli scientist who isolated THC in 1964. In 1999, GW Pharmaceuticals, a phytochemical company, that's a company that makes uh, medications out of plants, started doing research with uh, tincture of cannabis. Uh, their product is now being sold in Canada by Bayer. Um, in 2000, the California Marijuana Research Center was started at the University of California San Diego School of Medicine. They have administered uh, in excess of 18 FDA-approved smoke marijuana medical studies, several of which uh, have appeared in peer-reviewed uh, journals. Uh, Dr. Donald Abrams uh, is somebody who fought with the FDA for nine years uh, to uh, get a study with smoke marijuana. Finally, when he designed the study to determine if it actually harmed people with AIDS, uh, they approved his study. He found out it not only did not harm people with AIDS, but that it uh, facilitated weight gain, and it was more effective than Marinol and, of course, more effective than uh, the placebo. Uh, Dr. Ware is at uh, McGill in Canada, and I always think it's ironic. I mean, the Canadian border is... Uh, just uh, less than uh, 125 miles from where I grew up, you can go to Canada and you can get legal marijuana, you can get legal tincture of cannabis uh, made by uh, GW Pharmaceuticals. And Dr. Ware's uh, area of interest is relief of pain with cannabis and cannabinoids. Dr. Donald Tashkin is a very good researcher at UCLA. Uh, he is a pulmonologist. 
His research demonstrated that cannabis was a bronchodilator. He also found in a study that I think he was surprised at the results that the incidence of uh, lung cancer in people who smoked cannabis was less than the incidence of lung cancer in people who smoke nothing at all. And so it may actually be a preventive uh, in terms of cancer. Uh, there's a very good article by Robert Melamede, uh, who is a professor of bi uh, biology uh, at the University of Colorado, Colorado uh, Springs uh, branch. And uh, Dr. Abrams uh, had a recent article that appeared in the Journal of Neurology in the February issue uh, showing that there was a 34% decrease in neuropathic pain in people uh, who had AIDS. For those of you who have a real interest in learning more about this, the, there's a great organization called Patients Out of Time. Uh, it's run by uh, a nurse whose area of expertise is drug abuse treatment, which is one of my areas of expertise. They have put on um, conferences every other year since 2000, including world-class researchers, uh, their upcoming one will have Abrams, Tashkin, uh, and Ware presenting, as well as four of the five federally legal medical marijuana patients. You may not be aware that the federal government sends out 300 hand-rolled marijuana cigarettes a month to four medical marijuana patients and 300 every three weeks to uh, a fifth. Uh, originally, there were 15 people in that uh, program, but several of them have uh, passed away because they had uh, significant uh, illnesses. Anyway, uh, I wish I had more time to tell you about that conference. Suffice to say, I think it's worth uh, your looking into. You are listening to the Cultural Baggage Program on the Drug Truth Network. The voice we hear is that of author, court expert, and Dr. David Behrman giving a presentation last week to the University of Wisconsin Medical School. If I'm able to get you to think differently about cannabis, it may have to do with the fact that you are two generations younger than I. It took me about 20 years uh, from first uh, finding out about medicinal cannabis from my father, who was a pharmacist up in Rice Lake. We were talking about prohibition, and he was telling me that when he was a freshman in pharmacy school at the University of Minnesota in 1928, that one of their assignments was to make tincture of cannabis. It had nothing to do with cannabis. It had to do with making tinctures, how to extract the pharmacologically active ingredient in plant material. Uh, and he showed me this book, his 1927 uh, edition of Remington's Textbook of Pharmacy. And on page 999 uh, and 1000, uh, it talks about cannabis. And it talks about the use of cannabis as an anodyne, which is an archaic word for painkiller. And that's still the number one indication for uh, the recommendation of, of cannabis, whether it's in Oregon, Colorado, or California, the three states that I'm somewhat familiar with the statistics, somewhere between 60 and 65 percent of the recommendations are for uh, relief of pain. And we'll get into that in a little bit greater uh, detail uh, a little bit later. At any rate, <clears throat> it took me about 20 years before uh, I finally uh, got away from being influenced by the propaganda that's out there, uh, that this was just a ruse uh, to deal with uh, recreational use of cannabis. Uh, we need to separate talking about 
the medicinal use of a substance versus the recreational use of a substance. The fact that opiates, and I have a long uh, experience, 40 years of experience involved in one way, shape, or form in drug abuse treatment and prevention uh, with opiate abuse. And the fact that opiate has some abuse potential does not stop us from prescribing that for pain. As a matter of fact, you have uh, an organization here that uh, started a support group for people with pain. In California, there was enough concern about physicians' lack of appreciation of treating pain that in order to have our license in California, we must have 12 contact hours in end-of-life care and pain management. Uh, We have developed in this country an opiate phobia uh, and often underprescribe uh, opiates. I have a lot of experience, uh, about 800 uh, opiate abusers that I've treated in my role as medical director of a methadone maintenance program, an inpatient methadone treatment program, and an outpatient opiate detoxification program. So I feel relatively comfortable uh, talking about uh, that particular uh, area. Now, <clears throat> in 2000, uh, I started uh, focusing on making recommendations for the medicinal use of cannabis. Uh, I was comfortable with the fact that it was uh, medically useful, but I had an education from my patients as to how useful it was. And I'll give you a few examples uh, as we go on with this uh, talk. The AIDS patients were uh, one of the first groups of patients that started using cannabis uh, to uh, any great extent. Uh, Of course, uh, it was very helpful as an appetite stimulant. Uh, Abrams uh, research later demonstrated that. Uh, in a double-blind study. It's useful as an anti-nauseant and as an antidepressant. And Abrams uh, once said uh, that, yes, uh, euphoria may be a side effect, but when you're treating people with uh, AIDS or you're treating oncology patients, a a little euphoria isn't a bad thing. And with cancer patients, again, the anti-nausea, appetite stimulant, and antidepressant effect of the drug uh, are uh, very important. Now, these uh, things are not only evidenced by the clinical experience of myself and hundreds of other physicians. Matter of fact, in Oregon, where they have a mandatory patient identification card program, 2,500 physicians have made recommendations to one or more of their patients. So this isn't something that is a marginalized group of weirdos that are out there, uh, but are physicians who are listening to their patients. And I can tell you that you have instant rapport with your patients. Somebody comes in and tells you, Doc, I'm a paraplegic. I have excruciating pain. Uh, I was taking enormous amounts of oxycodone. It was causing me to be confused. It was giving me constipation. And I started using marijuana. A friend of mine told me, you try this. And I tried it. I was able to dramatically decrease the dose of OxyContin that I was taking. I was able to be able to uh, focus. I wasn't confused. I could play with my grandchildren. Uh, and you begin to uh, appreciate uh, the utility of this drug. And also, when the patient tells you that and you as the physician validate, yes, this does have pain-relieving characteristics. This is something that I know is helping you you have really solidified the doctor-patient relationship. You are hearing the patient. You are listening to them. On the other hand, if you roll your eyes skyward and say, I don't want to talk about that, 
that is going to have a chilling effect on the doctor-patient uh, relationship. The use of uh, uh, cannabis as an anti-nauseant and appetite stimulant and pain reliever are documented by animal studies and culture studies. I recently attended the 17th Neuropharmacological Conference uh, October 31st to November 2nd, where there were presentations from all over the world, including two from the Medical College of Wisconsin. Uh, and these uh, basic science studies tend to complement uh, our clinical uh, experience. These are, in my experience, the top six conditions that um, uh, cannabis is useful uh, Pain, of course, number one. Sleep uh, is something that it's very effective. And in many cases, it's to help uh, treat uh, uh, insomnia in people who have pain, nausea. Some people think that uh, it has a specific anti-arthritic effect. Uh, interestingly, there are a number of people with these uh, arthritic conditions or autoimmune diseases that we don't know much about that it's good at relieving. I mean, fibromyalgia, restless leg syndrome, complex uh, regional pain syndrome. Many people who uh, have found no relief from anything else find that they do get some relief, and in some cases a lot of relief, uh, from cannabis. I'm going to talk about ADD and ADHD a little bit later, uh, but uh, it's rather uh, has a rather remarkable effect on that. When I was at this conference, I was sitting at a table with some of the honchos. Of course, everybody there was a Ph.D., and I was saying, well, I have a number of uh, patients uh, that I've treated with cannabis for uh, ADD and ADHD, and they've said, uh, you know, it helped me uh, graduate the Maritime Academy. And then I said, and there was one of my patients who said it helped me get my Ph.D. Well, all of these Ph.D.s at the table laughed knowingly. Uh, nobody there admitted that it helped them get their Ph.D., but they seemed to understand uh, what I was getting at. Okay, and, of course, the migraine headache thing, uh, this is something that uh, Dr. Oster was uh, right about then, and I'm uh, still right. Uh, other conditions, uh, seizures, glaucoma. The question of how long it decreases your interocular pressure is one that I haven't been able to nail down. In discussions with just uh, clinicians, um, it's, some studies indicate four hours. Other in, studies indicate as much as 21 hours. It decreases your interocular pressure by about 25%. So people began to worry about increased interocular pressure when it's at about 19, uh, and uh, 25 is generally considered, if you're over that, you absolutely have uh, glaucoma. So let's say that your interocular pressure was 22, and you could decrease it by uh, a fourth, you'd be down around 16 or 17 into the safe range. So this is something that is very helpful. And also people prefer uh, either eating or tinctures or smoking or vaporizing as opposed to putting drops in their eyes. So this is a reasonable alternative. Uh, I mentioned the fibromyalgia and that sort of thing. Of course, diabetic peripheral neuropathy is another kind of peripheral neuropathy, just like the AIDS peripheral neuropathy. I have several uh, diabetic patients who have found that this is the only thing uh, that gives them relief. All right. Once again, this is the Cultural Baggage Show on the Drug Truth Network. That was Dr. David Behrman giving a presentation last week at the Wisconsin Medical School. We'll have more of this on next week's Century of Lies program. 
It's time to play Name That Drug by its side effects. Loss of personal freedom, family and possessions, ineligible for government funding, education, licensing, housing or employment, loss of aggressive mindset in a dangerous world. This drug's peaceful, easy feeling may be habit forming. Time's up. The answer, Doobie, Jimmy, Joint, Reefer, Spliff, Jibber, Jay, Biffa, Jazz, Blunt, Steege, Greener, Cracker, Hogger, Bone, Carrot, Mary Jane, Marijuana, Cannabis, Sativa, made by God, prohibited by man. Bill Piper, Director of National Affairs for the Drug Policy Alliance, New York-based organization advocating alternatives to the war on drugs. Congress has taken a look at the uh, Higher Education Act and done the exact opposite of what was thought, right? There were some high hopes that uh, Democrats would repeal uh, a federal law that uh, takes away student loans uh, from uh, students that are convicted of drug offenses. Uh, more than 200,000 students have already uh, had have already had their loans um, taken away, uh, in most cases for, you know, minor uh, possession offenses. And, it, and it's just it's completely counterproductive to kick uh, students uh, out of college. And there was some hope because Democrats were reauthorizing the Higher Education Act, which is the, the federal law that, you know, provides school loans and grants, et cetera, to uh, students. Uh, there was a lot of hope that Democrats would use that as an opportunity to re- repeal this provision. Uh, and a lot of groups were expecting them to do so, uh, you know, primarily because Democrats indicated early in the year that that's what they were going to do. But unfortunately, uh, they've uh, they've chickened out, and you know, instead of you know, not only did they not repeal the provision, uh, they've got, they've expanded some other provisions uh, that deny Pell grants uh, to uh, sex offenders. And so they're uh, you know, instead of making more school loans available, they're they're actually making less school loans. Uh, available. In my perspective on this situation in Congress is that we have two parties, one of bullies being the Republicans and the other truly being the cowards, the Democrats, unwilling to uh, stand for that which they uh, speak of in private, but publicly they, they go down this same road of uh, prosecution. Yeah, I think, that, I think it's pretty accurate, at least when it comes uh, to drugs. And, and, I, and I would say that it's not even uh, that you know most Republicans are bullies. It's a handful, really, uh, that you know are are the ones really pushing this. So you've got like you know Congressman Mark Souter in the House on the one hand, and you know Senator Dement in the Senate, and so there's like a you know a handful of very vocal uh, Republicans that you know are trying to use the drug issue as a wedge issue, and Democrats you know are they're just running scared, and that's that's unfortunate because we're you know the American people are not where they were you know in the 1980s. You know, the American people want change. They're rejecting punitive policies, and I think Democrats could Democrats could re, uh, reform some of these punitive drug policies uh, and and not be hurt, uh, you know, next year in the elections. But they're they're just running they're running scared. It's it's part of a bigger uh, a bigger problem that they have, you know, when it comes to other issues. Uh, you know, the war, for instance. Uh, you know, there's a lot of frustration uh, among some of their core supporters. Um, that, that they're just not doing anything, and they're just kind of taking their base uh, for granted. And I, I think that's probably going to hurt them because they, they need people, you know, if they're going to hold the House and the Senate, they, they, they need people to turn out uh, and, and vote for them. And, and ignoring their base is just uh, the wrong way to go. Um, and, you know, Republicans could step forward and, and actually start doing uh, good things on drug policy reform, and you know they probably would get some support, but I, I don't see them doing that anytime soon either. I, I see it as they're trying to pull a Muhammad Ali, if you will, 
doing a rope-a-dope uh, up until the next election and hoping to win everything at that point. I, I don't see it working in their favor. Yeah, I mean, that's their strategy, basically, is to do nothing. They think, you know, if they don't do anything, then there's no there's no downside, there's no uh, risk, because they're afraid if they do something, then there might be a backlash. But, you know, the downside to that strategy is, you know, why would you vote for people that are doing nothing? Exactly. Now, it is, the, it is the same strategy that Republicans used in the lead-up to the 2006 election. You know, they weren't doing anything, and they were just hoping that they were going to squeak by, and their base was like, why should we come out? And the base didn't come out, and Democrats took the House and Senate. So, you know, Democrats are doing the same failed strategy the Republicans did just two years ago. Drug Policy Alliance and uh, several other organizations have a major conference coming up in early December. Why don't you tell the folks about that? Oh, sure. Uh, uh, there's an International Drug Policy Reform Conference in New Orleans, uh, December 5th through 8th. Um, it's co-sponsored by the Drug Policy Alliance, the ACLU, Harm Reduction Coalition, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, a bunch of other uh, groups. It's going to bring about a 1,000 people together, uh, largely from the U.S., but some from around the world. And it's going to be students, activists, policymakers, uh, journalists, academics, you name it. Just basically a 1,000 or so people who believe the war on drugs is doing more uh, harm than good. You know, I encourage people, you know, it's not too late to sign up. Uh, and you can go to our, our website, drugpolicy.org, uh, and get more uh, information. But it's, it's basically the best crash course on drug policy and drug policy reform, uh, you know, this year. And, and it's in New Orleans, so, it's, you know, it's going to be fun. Poppygate, bizarre news about the U.S. policy on controlling heroin, featuring Glenn Greenway. Hey, keep it down. We're trying to have a drug war over here. Every minute in America, there are four arrests for drug offenses, and for every American drug arrest, another pound of pure Afghan heroin enters world black markets. In the last six years, Afghanistan's share of the world's heroin market has skyrocketed from 12 to 93%. Opium and heroin production now account for 53% of the country's GDP, about $4 billion annually, $3 billion of which spills directly into the coffers of corrupt officials and religious extremists. The entire crop may be worth as much as $400 billion on international markets. This week, UNODC Chief Antonio Maria Costa ominously warned, quote, Afghanistan's neighbors will be hit by a tsunami of the most deadly drug, end quote. While ignoring potential tax revenues on currently illicit substances, America's $9 trillion national debt increases $347,000 per minute. America actually wages its domestic and international drug war on credit while passively overseeing the largest opium harvests since the 19th century opium wars. Just say, charge it. The news this morning includes the destruction of four heroin labs by Afghan police and, quoting CNN, Taliban militants slashed the hands and legs of five abducted policemen in southern Afghanistan and hung their mutilated bodies from trees in a warning to villagers against working with the government. This is Glenn Greenway reporting for the Drug Truth Network.
Warning, the government doesn't want you to hear this ad. Because they're embarrassed. They funded research indicating marijuana doesn't cause lung cancer and might even prevent cancer. Government research also found medical uses for marijuana and no one has ever died of a marijuana overdose. The more research the government conducts, the more they undermine their own war on marijuana users. Visit the Marijuana Policy Project Foundation at joinmpp.org or call toll-free 1-877-JOIN-MPP. Be sure to tune in to next week's Century of Lies program for the rest of that presentation from Dr. Behrman. Seems to be an all-medical marijuana week on the Drug Truth Network. On this week's Century of Lies program, we have a presentation by Retirement Living TV talking about the use of marijuana by senior citizens. And, of course, we have about a dozen videos about medical marijuana online at youtube.com slash fdbecker. And, once again, I remind you that because of drug prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag. Please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT Houston. Jam dancing on the edge of the <laughs>